Until 1989, Eastern Europe was a dark and gloomy region, part of what many Americans called the evil empire. Today, the region's a booming festival of pent-up entrepreneurial spirit. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. The obligatory greys and preachy reds of communism live on only in Eastern Europe's history books and museums. These days, kitschy theme restaurants serve dreary food from the 1960s. Service people have a vocabulary bigger than yet, and the profit motive has spawned an impressive new efficiency and affluence. Today's Eastern Europe has become a traveler's delight. With so much change so fast, I've invited a few of my tour guide friends from the region to join us on today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves. Our guests are Christoph Dressler, who grew up just east of the Berlin Wall, and Marjan Kriskovic and Tina Hiti, both raised in the former Yugoslavia. We'll get an insider's perspective on Eastern Europe in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. If you haven't seen Eastern Europe lately, you won't recognize it. And that's how the European Union wants it. Now that most of what was the Warsaw Pact is part of the EU, the region is enjoying an extreme makeover. The economy is booming, and so is tourism, from Dubrovnik all the way to Gdansk. In the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear from a few of my friends who witnessed the fall of communism up close as they grew up, and we'll see what the region, with so much undiscovered mystery and charm, has to offer the American tourist. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and I want to take you east right now. And, you know, I'm a Europhile, so east means Eastern Europe, the former Warsaw Pact, and uh, it's the new frontier for European tourism, as most of the Warsaw Pact has joined the European Union and no longer can really be called Eastern Europe. I've got with me in the studio two guides who both grew up in Eastern Europe, Marjan Kreskovic from Slovenia and Croatia, and I've got Christoph Dressler from Eastern Germany. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. You know, as I was thinking about where you're from, I wish we had somebody from every country in Eastern Europe, but it was a big gang. You guys grew up in the Warsaw Pact, just like I grew up in NATO. And uh, you're both very close to the border of uh, Western Europe, and you grew up in during the Cold War. Marian, you were in Slovenia, which is, you could almost taste uh, Austria, I suppose, <laughs> sometimes. That's right. Uh, I mean, there was a big difference from country to country, even within the Warsaw Pact. And uh, me growing up in uh, Slovenia, which was then part of former Yugoslavia, which wasn't actually part of the Warsaw Pact, but was kind of between the East and the West, there was more freedom concerning traveling in former Yugoslavia than there was in most other Warsaw Pact. Oh, so you Pact. weren't in the Warsaw Pact. Yugoslavia, Tito managed to keep you That's guys right. out of it. That's right. It was one of the founding members of the uh, non-aligned bloc free nations. Non-aligned. So you, had, you didn't have the freedom that people over the border had, but you had more freedom than a lot of people actually in the Warsaw Pact. Is that right? Mm, that's right. It was kind of a compromise. You could even have private property and things that were unthinkable behind the Iron Curtain, but always with limitations. It was still a communist country, so sure. there was a limitation on how many employees or school square feet or so on your business could have. So it was kind of a combination. And, and I called you Slovene from Slovenia, Did, but you also grew up in Croatia, is that right? That's right. I had the fortune of uh, growing up on a, one of the beautiful uh, Croatian Adriatic islands. So I had the combination of the best of the two worlds. Are you Slovene or Croat? Both. <laughs> Both? Are your parents Slovene or Croat? Both. <laughs> well, there you go. And uh, Christoph, you yeah. grew up uh, just a few miles from Western Germany, That's but right. in Eastern Germany. The wall fell, and you missed it by about five miles. Exactly. I mean, or when it was built up, I just missed it. Yeah, that's right. And uh, that must uh, have been strange for you, so close to the West, but, but close doesn't matter when it comes to this kind of politics. And I, yeah, and I was just thinking about this right now because uh, Marian just told us, you know, uh, a few things that I was very envious for. And yet I was actually, you know, in the center of Europe, if you want. So, I mean, nowadays, right. today's Europe. So um, some of the things that he was mentioning, we did not have. And you were in, you were actually in Germany, but you were in the Russian sector of Germany. Now, when we call, we Americans call Eastern, what we call Eastern Europe, is defined really by where the Iron Curtain fell or the Warsaw Pact. I know that that's not actually Eastern Europe. It's it's If you have to go east-west, free communist or capitalist communist, maybe yeah. that would be a definition. Historically, you're from Central Europe. That's right. So that's we're right. talking about a political 
border here. Um, right. Eastern sense. Europe would be former Soviet Union. Ukraine would That's be Eastern right. Europe or Romania. something like this. Mm-hmm. So what you know is Eastern Europe is again becoming with Europe uniting in the EU as the new heart of the future Europe. Again. This is the new center of Europe. That's right. As it was before and once again. So many Americans are focused on the, you know, the communist era and we go to Eastern Europe and we look for the little museums that have the statues of Stalin and so on. It's been 15, 18 years now. For you guys, is this old news? Is it kind of annoying to keep bringing it up? Oh, yes, but uh, a lot of things changed since those days. Again, in former Yugoslavia, you wouldn't have found any statues of Stalin or Lenin. In fact, as early as 1948, Yugoslavia broke off all ties to Russia and was actually in very poor relations with the um, Warsaw Pact countries and in very good relations with the West, remaining mm-hmm. a communist country. But um, in most places also that used to be part of the Warsaw Pact, uh, it is kind of old news, especially for the new generations. I mean, there's a whole generation of teenagers now already becoming adults that never saw these things and uh, feel the same about it as they do about something that happened in the 17th, 15th, or whichever century. Right. Half of, um, half of the people in Eastern Europe have no living memory of communism, really. This is textbook stuff now. That's right. Christoph. Yeah. Is this stress on communism, is this annoying for you as a tour guide, or is that, uh, what, what's your take on that when people talk about communism all the time? Not at all. I'm 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 a very proud person in in respect to history, and uh, um, I'm just part of it. I I 15 years of my life. That's that's what makes me a person. And if I would despise communism or the the way I grew up, I would despise uh, myself. So I cannot do that. Obviously, um, we were talking about it's part of your heritage. In other words, absolutely, absolutely. And I'm very proud. And uh, I have friends. I, I lived in the west part, western part of Germany. Um, I have close friends there. I was the token East German at the Stammtisch at our at our tribal table, and and yet I was very proud and very vehement about it. And I actually took uh, these guys over to uh, across the border because some of them haven't seen the eastern part of Germany, and they're like, oh, "Man, you, you this is an eye opener. This is great for eye us." Eye opener in what sense? In in the sense of there's a landscape that that they have heard of and a, uh, a uniquely and, German landscape. Exactly. I mean, this economics. is just a regional, yeah, regional type of. Uh, is, is there any? Both of you spent some of your best young years uh, with this sort of needless damper on what your opportunities were growing up under communism. Mm-hmm. Do you have some lingering resentment or anger about communism, or do you have sort of a nostalgia for communism? Uh, uh, let Let me open this, uh, and then Marian, maybe. Um, um, I know I had a file under the uh, East German uh, regime, so which means. I was only 15, maybe pushing 16, but uh, some people I hung out with or some jokes that I made were recorded and are definitely in my file somewhere. Um, but I am I'm not opening that file. I'm not... Uh, you don't even want to go to it? No, no, I don't. You've got a file, you could get at it, and you choose not to. No, you're, you're beyond this, what I, when I talk about the file, is from the secret police, right? The Stasi. Right. So they right. keep all the information. So who knows what's in there and who knows who betrayed me back then. And it would just open a, another... A uh, can of worms, so to speak, for because me personally. If you're in a file, somebody in your in your town, yeah, must have put you in the file. Yeah, somebody created one for me and said, mm. "Yeah, this guy's interested. Let's keep an eye on him. He might so uh, do certain had... things in his in his future life, and it's good to keep a keep a tap on him now." Wow. So, uh, Marian, Marian, yeah, I find it really uh, impressive nowadays traveling around um, politically Eastern Europe. Just seeing how things were in different countries, specifically in uh, East Ger- former East Germany, uh, where actually I, I believe most people choose not to see those Stasi files, secret police files they have on themselves just for the same reason. And just coming to terms with what was going on in the background out of sight of uh, the regular everyday citizen is just eye-opening even for us that lived it and were there. Especially as a child, you would not... As a teenager, you would not see many of these things. You know, you right. had other preoccupations. and But now there's a very poignant new museum in Budapest, a museum to the secret police under that's, communism. That's right. Uh, the House of Terror. It's that's called. right. It's actually not only to uh, the times of uh, communism, but also previously to the times of fascism, which has continued from one to another. Exactly. Which is... Uh, and the poignant thing is you've got uh, photographs of people who were tortured and killed, and the police that did this are now living just down the street. They're that's part of right. the community still. And no one wants to, as Christoph put it, open that can of worms because so many people were were involved and uh, it would raise so many questions. It wouldn't mm. just affect 
just a very small portion of the society, but a huge segment of it. And no one really, uh, everyone's kind of uh, afraid of dealing with that. So the, the young generation really wants to get on with life and, and That's not, right. not dredge yes. this up. And, and I have to say, it's in a way for me, it is, uh, I'm not faced with the fact that I have to forgive somebody. Um, I am I'm forgiving in general. Um, not that I was I was hurt. This is this is the thing. I I you know you were betrayed. I was a little bit yeah, and uh, small penalized. You know, in terms, uh, you know, I was a I was a young athlete, aspiring athlete of East Germany, uh, trying to go on with my career, and knowing um, now what I know that uh, I would have never had a chance in you, a way. Oh, you would have never had a chance to make it as an athlete because of what was in your file. Well, that I don't know, but I know I know for sure that my family wasn't of the political correct background. Right, and and it's easier for you psychologically to forgive the system instead of an yeah. individual. Oh, exactly. That's that's really what it boils down to. Thanks. I mean, it's if I would have gotten hurt, and I I really need to find out, you know. But there wasn't something that really got in my way. Actually, the sunshine came in a, in a in a way later on, and I'm 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 the you know I managed to. Uh, do the best for myself in a way. And so uh, now it would only go back 15 years in time to... Non-productive. Um, yeah, it, would, it wouldn't help me. It'd be non-productive, yeah. So make the time now. Replay the game for each other. Sagrayam Vagru Yaitay Chilikon Melin Vakruk Zimli Vaksabitayat We'll have more with Christoph and Marianne in a moment as we take a second look at the eastern half of the European Union, then and now. And you can follow up on today's conversation in the feedback form on our website. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Right now, let's take a minute to enjoy some haiku recently emailed to us by our traveling listeners. Here's Kathy McDonald to read what's come in. Beth Hart from Lansing, Michigan is getting ready to return to Egypt to work on some archaeological projects. She sends us this haiku while in Southern California, preparing for her new assignment. So satisfying is a plain ticket that reads, One Way to Cairo. Catherine Reichert Bow of Portland sends us this poem about a recent flight she took. Long Lines at Heathrow Toothpaste goes into the trash. The bad guys won't win. And Norm Farrell of North Vancouver, British Columbia, writes us this poem about a scene that could take place near his home. Walk a quiet trail. Hey, what is that over there? Yikes, a grizzly bear. Eight seven seven three 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 Rick. That's our phone number. Or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. We'll continue our conversation on Eastern Europe in a moment. And later, Tina Hiti from Slovenia joins us to offer touring suggestions. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Io sono Lisa Anderson e abito in Nord Italia, in Piemonte, e io viaggio con Rick Steves. That's Italian for my name is Lisa Anderson, and I live in northern Italy in the region of Piemonte, Piedmont, and I travel with Rick Steves. Io sono Lisa Anderson, di Nord Italia, e abito in Piemonte, e io viaggio con Rick Steves. 877-333-RICK and radio at ricksteves.com. That's how you join the conversation on Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking right now with Marian Kriskovic from Slovenia and Christoph Dressler from Eastern Germany about what we Americans call Eastern Europe, what it was like a few years ago, and what it's like now. And in a little bit, Tina Hiti joins Marian to take your calls with touring suggestions for the region. What are the generational differences for people regarding their feelings towards the communist age that's now 15 or 18 years ago? Is it the, um, are the um, older people more burdened with this sort of baggage and these scars? Well, of course. I mean, there's a whole generation that grew up after World War II that was born into that society and uh, knows nothing else. So yeah. for them, when the Iron Curtain came down, they knew nothing else. They were sheltered and pampered by the mm-hmm. communist regime that was on one side very cruel, but on the, on the other hand, uh, provided everything for your basic needs. And in, in fact, they uh, encouraged you not to think, not to do anything. They would take care of every every basic need of yours, uh, your housing, your your bills, your job. Your, so this cradle to grave security. I that's mean, right. And, that, and, and imagine that's... all of a sudden waking up, being sheltered like that your entire life for have 50, 60 years, and all of a sudden you have to think about your pension fund, your mutual fund stocks, bonds, health care, this and that, Overwhelming. insurance. It is, and, and people don't know how to deal with it. They're completely lost. A, a lot of the people from that generation uh, actually feel a lot of uh, nostalgia for right. those, as they call it, good old days. Of course, they actually uh, call it the good old days. That's people. right. And, and of course, forgetting that it wasn't really all good. Well, we can yeah. think of the good old days, too, in, in America. And, you know, we forget about uh, racism or other problems yeah. that were I think much this more is a, pronounced. And this, this is easy a to do. Psychological, this is a psychological condition of, of human beings of, of seeing the past a little bit more glorified than it really what it was. But one thing good about the communist time was people, I think, had more time for families and sort of everything wasn't, time was not money. Everything wasn't so aggressive. And I think now things are starting to rev up, aren't they? We were more relaxed, yeah, in a way. Yeah. So there were, <laughs> I, I've heard a lot of people uh, think about the good old days in terms of that. Now today, yeah. how is that? Are people, uh, I've heard that in some countries there's, uh, people are putting off having children. They've got a chance to make money and they're going to make money. Yeah. You have to hustle. Yes. Have to hustle. It's all about making money. It's all about uh, getting higher growth rates in your economy and so on. And a lot of these countries are struggling to have a transitioning uh, economy and a transition from plan to market economy. There's a lot of sacrifices they have to do to make the cut. Multitasking. I had a guide in Hungary that said you got to multitask these days. Oh, yes. <laughs> he was tour guiding on one hand and he had a cell phone doing something else on the other. That's right. That's how it goes these days. And I have, I have to say, uh, I add to this because our travelers out there think now, wow, I mean, uh, Eastern Europe sounds like pretty much my backyard and you, you, uh, you have to do everything for growth and you have to do everything for, uh, you know, you re- neglect your family and blah, 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 um, or your vacation time. It, it's still not like that. If you go out east, if you travel east, I find it very relaxing. I don't know how you guys... Is that right? So you travel to the East and it is more conducive to relaxing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I spent about three months in uh, Romania um, was on a project there working for, um, actually for U.S. governmental agencies. And, um, I was, I was hanging out with my friends from, from Bucharest. And I mean, they, they were able to relax in a way different way that, uh, that, uh, some, someone in the West would be able to. And they mm. made the smallest things work for them. It's, it's unbelievable how much traveling we got in or, uh, even get getting into any concerts for free and things like that. So they know how to work this. They're system. very crafty Romanians. I love them. I love them, and um, and 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 very relaxed and very cool. And and that's what I mean. If you if you move out there, if you go to like let's say Budapest, there's clearly a difference. I think 
um, traveling, let's say, into Budapest, uh, coming from you know Salzburg or somewhere mm -hmm. from that direction. Oh yeah, I think uh, I think we'd all agree if somebody's going to Western Europe, you're you're really missing out if you don't uh, swing east. And everything's very easy now. The train connections are excellent. You've mm -hmm. got beautiful public mm -hmm. transportation, fine roads, no visas. Uh, you know, uh, more and more countries are using the euro. It's um, getting easier and easier. You know, in my uh, my memory of, of in the Cold War days, every country had its own kind of forced resort. Um, Bulgaria was Varna, and uh, what was it? Uh, Poland was Zakopane up in the mountains, mm -hmm. Hungary, Lake Balaton, and so on. Uh, and I felt like these were, you all work, and then you all go to the same place on vacation. You all have the same color and kind of camera, and you're all wearing the same uh, uh, shoes. It was just sort of this one uniform society, and I thought these resorts were nice because they weren't a factory, but if you had the freedom to go to the Mediterranean, you might have chosen somewhere else. Uh, are these places mm -hmm. still resorts? What are your memories of these resorts? Uh, where do people like to go now? Oh, well, of course, a lot of these places are still resorts, and a lot of people uh, still like going there because they have so many nice memories from spending time with their families there. But, of course, uh, people who didn't have the chance to travel before want to see new things. They go to other places. Cheap flights nowadays in Europe make it possible to go anywhere for the same amount of money you would go on a holiday just within an hour's drive close to you. So they go to Turkey, they go to Greece, they go to Spain. They want to see new things as well. So uh, you yeah. see both sides, actually. I, yeah, I would say the same. And uh, what I noticed, at least in, in my family and my immediate uh, people, the ones that are willing to travel get those Western cities out of their system. You know, it had to be Italy one year and it had to be France and Paris. And then they kind of like, uh, right now at least, uh, 10, 15 years down the road, um, my folks are going to Croatia. All right. So yeah. they had to see the West because they never could. But once they saw it once, they're more they're more Eastern oriented and they're more comfortable in that sort of zone. At least, at least speaking from I can't speak for everybody. Yeah. At least speaking from my family, that this is what has happened. Yeah. I think that's a predominant trend. Uh, yeah, a lot of people just wanted to see yeah. as soon as the Iron Curtain fell, new things, new places. What it was that they were missing out on this whole time. And now when they have, they finally realize, well, it wasn't so bad what we have. You've got some beautiful places too. to the same places they were going I remember those before. first summers after freedom and uh, Venice was filled with people from all over Eastern Europe that had already always heard about Venice, never been there. And they didn't, you know, I mean, one hot dog would cost them two days wages back then, you know. Yeah. Rick, yeah. that was one of them. Were you? <laughs> tell us how you went to, tell us about your first trip like that. Oh man, it was, um, it was our very, very first class trip uh, down to the Dolomites and we stayed outside of Venice like every mass tourism uh, person does and I saw only Venice uh, coming in that bus you know getting getting across the channel go on the, in the, into Lagoon go on the island um, I remember uh, the Bridge of Sighs standing with 10,000 other people on a little other little bridge and dressed like a little East German you know I had my, my long hair in the back of the 80s mm -hmm. so we kind of got stuck in, in that a little bit and it was the, the early 90s and I got pictures of that. I got pictures from uh, from that. You know, the merchants just were, the, all of Western Europe wanted to be polite, and they felt like it was great you guys were free and everything. But, boy, people were would come home on these old buses. You'd see them, <laughs> these old Czech buses or whatever, and they would bring all their meat, their sausage and bread with them and their bottled pop and whatever. Oh, yeah. You'd come in, and you could uh, park at the, maybe maybe go all night on the bus, arrive in the morning, and then you've got... The whole St. Mark's Square in Venice is filled with people from Eastern Europe yeah. sitting on the doorsteps, eating their sausage, looking at all these great things. End of the day, back on the bus and sleep on the bus all the way home. So that all it cost him really was the, the gasoline but uh, you gotta, to get down you, there. Now looking at it, I mean, in a way, you gotta you got to like that. you got to love that because, I mean, these people, I mean, this is a long trip, you know, three oh, yeah. days in a bus basically mm -hmm. just to spend uh, a few hours in, on a crowded St. Mark's Square and it is your, your trip of your lifetime, oh. yeah, you know. And you pack your sandwich. You probably eat the stuff that you just packed at home, you know. But this is what, what made, I mean, it was very special to me. There was tons of people. But now that I know Venice at night when everybody's gone, <laughs> I can't, you know, I can't kind of can't believe I was, I was one of them. But, but yet, you know, this was my first trip into, the, into Western Europe. So Thank goodness now it's not so horribly expensive for Eastern <laughs> Europeans. You can get there now and actually... Uh, buy a yes. local uh, glass of wine or something. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, um, one thing frustrating for me is to think that all of the corrupt, so much of the corruption from the Communist Party days, a lot of these people just weaseled their way into the new order. And today you've got the same thugs and crooks that used that's to right. corrupt your society. Tell me a little bit about how that's working generally in Eastern Europe. 
Well, um, the Iron Curtain came down quite suddenly. No one really expected it to happen so quickly. So people for half a century, in some places even longer, didn't really know how to come to terms with democracy and so much freedom. They were overwhelmed with all that all of a sudden. And there were people who knew how to take advantage of that. and Well-positioned insiders. That's right, already within the party. They were just called themselves and um, suddenly they're new democrats that's right they rediscovered they've seen the light they uh, seen the new truth and uh, they just put on a new name mm-hmm. new disguise whatever and uh, they do the exact same things as they did before and that was seen in many unfortunately many of the transition countries yeah we 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 had a name for them actually right after the change which which was called wendehals in german that means hals is the neck and wende is actually the change so the political is kind of a spoof on, you know, political change, but you also turned your neck. So a person was able to just turning around 180%, you know, wow. just turn around turn and go the around. other direction. No. Same guy. Yeah, yeah. just the person yeah. is like, here is your political direction. Um, the political change came and just the next day he was going just in the opposite. You know, hmm. a person who yeah. was able to and someone who's got morals and someone who's got uh, ideals hmm. wasn't able to do that turn with its neck. So the ones, the most... The aggressive, the most aggressive and, and, and cruel ones were able to just swing it around and are sitting nowadays in, in pretty high chairs. The ones with the ideals who said, you know, communism wasn't so bad, of course, got scolded right away in the first f- few years. But now, you know, we come to terms to it. But yeah. What are the trends these days? Are people participating enthusiastically in democracy? Are things moving to the left or the right? Well, for at first, as I said, uh, people were kind of overwhelmed with so much freedom. They didn't know how exactly they should act, what they should do. They were kind of confused. So a lot of these scrupulous people had a chance to, uh, unfortunately, get their way. Then you had gradually in the next wave, people finally uh, seeing what was going on, what powers they actually have as voters, uh, taking those powers and um, doing something about it. But as democracy comes to terms and is settling in, people are gradually now losing interest in what's going on in the political scene, just like in the West. Less and less, especially the younger people, slowly, gradually. I agree, Marian. I agree. We're we're coming from very different different countries, uh, even though our past is kind of similar. Um, But I see the same thing happening in Germany, where right after the change of the few few years and when i say change i don't mean anything but the political change in europe so after this after after the change of regime everybody's like oh yeah democracy or you know there's a party and everybody got uh, 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 you know excited about it and and, and was very political and very mm-hmm. you know um, outspoken and because now they were able to but now 15 years later they realize not so much is being heard of what we want to say or if I want to say anything anyway, my vote doesn't get that kind of leverage. And people are, um, on some scale, give up. Yeah, they're somewhat disillusioned. They're kind and, of yeah, yeah tired yeah. of democracy in a way. And this sounds, sounds really cruel and really bad because, you know, here we, we, we got freed kind of like out of such a system. And yet the people are now just totally giving in to whatever their governments are saying mm-hmm. too. So, And then you've got the issue of joining the EU. And uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people, I know they worked the polls, complain about this. They they dreamed about being free. They survived all of this horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. Now they join the EU voluntarily. It's mm-hmm. sort of economic necessity. And they sort of lose their sovereignty that way. Somebody else writes yes. the laws now for them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so that even de- determines how they... Uh, uh, how they run their economy, how they serve their food even. I mean, in some countries you can't serve your traditional food because it doesn't meet the uh, European Union standards, hygiene standards. Standards, right. yes. <laughs> New standards. How is the EU for, uh, for you guys in Central Europe? Well, there are uh, different – people see it differently in different countries again. But I w- my sentiment is that the EU bureaucracy is kind of alienating itself from the common EU citizen in any country. Because there's so many, as you mentioned, in many places you can't even serve the traditional food anymore. There's so many new laws being passed, so many things that are being made up in uh, Strasbourg and uh, in Brussels. And a lot of people just don't really understand it, feel that they're not informed enough. Someone else is making the decisions. 
uh, without asking them and uh, things getting more expensive with the euro, things like that, um, immigration laws, and um, people don't feel informed enough informed and just feel more and more alienated to it. And that's yeah. what resulted also in the votes, I think, in France and uh, the Netherlands. So new challenges for new new members of the EU. And, and I have to, I have to uh, however, add to this that um, overall, and, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the EU, um, overall, it just serves all of us. We just have to understand what the what the political background is of of now molding all these countries together in 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 a, in a political, not so much political, but more like an economical sense. And uh, borders have shifted now. All of a sudden, uh, countries like uh, you know former Yugoslavia, all their all their membership uh, countries, and 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 other countries are the new eastern frontier. You know. Um, we're talking about Turkey is uh, yes. is about to uh, uh, enter the EU. Imagine how far um, the borders are being pressed east. Uh, the, the border the, of Europe then will go all yeah, the way to Europe. Iran, yeah. Mount Ararat. Uh, yes. Don't think about it as a, as a local as a local thing anymore. And which brings me back to the to the things of food and certain things not being able to be done um, locally. They're being able to to be served, even though they don't have certain you know standards. Um, that is no problem, but the problem is, and this is what the EU has to handle with, what if somebody comes up in Amsterdam and says, this is a true Turkish bakery, and just does a, does a really bad, horrible job, you know, and makes some fluffy bread. So the EU goes in and says, you know, you are not allowed to call it a Turkish bread. You know, we got Turkish uh, brothers almost being in the EU, and if they come to your bakery, they would really, really complain. And you know what? Um, rightfully so. This is what you're doing is a slander. You, you, this is not Turkish bread. This is horrible. You can't serve this, and that's that's what it really boils down to. It's it's also consumer protection, and um, and I'm saying this because I've, I've I have looked into some of those issues, and it is more consumer protection than anything. <laughs> well, the European Union, it's like trying to get a big unruly group of musicians together and to play like a symphony. Exactly. I think. So you need Bingo. all those rules and laws, but unfortunately for the common citizen, it's hard to see. Well, this is we're 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 seeing history in the making, and oh, it's absolutely. quite exciting. Oh, yes. And it's I think most very... people realize it's riddled with problems, but hey. It, bottom line, we're not going to have France and Germany bombing each other to smithereens That's anymore. Right. Uh, there's Europe can't. Europe is interwoven now, so there won't be wars within Europe. This, I don't think. this is the reason why I'm a fan of Euro. I mean, bring them, bring them together on some some common ground. Give people something that they can relate to each other in common. Um, they will not fight over some you know weird little thing. These are very exciting times and. Uh, Things are changing faster in Europe now than they ever have before in its history, and it's really exciting to witness that. I've been talking with Marian Kreskovic from Slovenia and Christoph Dressler from Eastern Germany. Thanks so much for your help, you guys. Thank you. Thank you for having us. insider suggestions for touring in Eastern Europe, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I've got with me Marian Kriskovic and Tina Hiti, both from uh, Slovenia, which is uh, former Yugoslavia. And both Tina and Marian uh, work with me as tour guides, and they take our American travelers on what we call the Best of Eastern Europe tour. Now, there is a little problem, isn't there, with calling this the Best of Eastern Europe? Well, what's uh, Americans think of, of uh, former Warsaw Pact as Eastern Europe. What is it, how do you take that as Eastern Europeans? Oh, yes, as Eastern Europeans, we never consider ourselves being Eastern Europeans because, you know, if you look geographically, 
We're not in the east, we're in the central Europe. Sometimes Vienna is even more to the east than some of the cities we visit on the tour are, like Prague. Prague is more on the west. Of course, geopolitically, it makes sense to call that part of Europe Eastern Europe. And it did for a while, for like 50 years after World War II. But all what, of its history... Of, for, because of the Iron yeah. Curtain. That's right. I mean, yeah. That's an easy way But to, for centuries and centuries before, this was always part of Central Europe, its heartland. And it is becoming, again, with the... So you're, you're basically telling Americans that the Iron Curtain is gone. It stopped <laughs> calling us East because for That's 50 right. years we were Eastern and, and for a thousand years we were Central. That's true. Well, what is Eastern Europe then today? Well, it's Ukraine, Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, so yeah. the actual Eastern Europe. In order for me to sell a tour or a guidebook to your part of Europe, mm -hmm. because I'm selling to Americans, I have to call it Eastern Europe, and I will just say... I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I wish I could call it Central Europe because I see it as Habsburg Europe also. And that, of course, is the yeah. center of Europe. And Vienna was the great capital and uh, wonderful, wonderful, uh, complex and rewarding destinations to travel through. Because you deal with Americans in Eastern Europe all the time. What are the big challenges for Americans going to Eastern Europe? And how can they best enjoy that part of Europe? Not Eastern Europe, Central Europe. I think it's the language is the first thing. It's a big barrier because it's most of the countries is Slavic language. And then when we get to Hungary, it's even it gets even harder. <laughs> then it makes Slavic Then feel even like for it. us, it's hard because we don't understand the word. It's completely something <laughs> else. I think that's kind of the biggest barrier. But I think that all around so-called Eastern Europe, um, a lot of young people really speak very good English. And you should just, you know, if you are kind of hanging out, you can just ask young people for advice. Now, you, you're both from uh, Slovenia. Yes. And that's a Slavic language, Slovenian. Yes. And it's essentially the same as Croatian. Mm, similar. similar, like... Because it used to be called Serbo-Croatian. That's Serbian-Croatia, right? So that's right. similar. Yeah. But uh, what about uh, Czech and uh, Polish? And uh, the, there's a... They tend to have similarities. But you, can you read a book that's in Polish or... I can make out a lot of it, so but maybe I cannot like, necessarily understand it. So everything. it's kind of like English and German. It's only That's that right, yes. like English and German. Okay, so I, I thought it might be like Norwegian mm -hmm. and Swedish, which you can actually almost... you can A Norwegian no, can watch no, Swedish no. TV and, and laugh at the jokes. Mm -hmm. no, <laughs> you no, watch Polish can. TV and you just go, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, you're, if you're planning a, a trip through uh, Central Europe, what Americans often call Eastern Europe, what would you say that, that the highlights are to make sure you have a good uh, variety in the best, you know, 10 days, 2 weeks? I think it's this varied culture. And so the, the varied cultures. Yeah, varied mm -hmm. cultures and how well the traditional things are preserved, you know, like, and this proud people, you know, how every single country, the people where you go there, they are so proud of where they come from. And just to see that in people, I think that's very special. There's some beautiful historical uh, cities and country towns that people do not expect to see on that tour because they imagine just industrial wasteland mm -hmm. expect, uh, waiting out there for them. But there's so much more to it and a lot of beautiful untouched nature. So, And the combination of the two, of these cities, of this history, of the countryside, just makes for a unique experience. We can get these beautiful, pristine areas in anywhere, frankly, but you can only get Stalinist, industrial, horrible, <laughs> polluted sprawl in Russia and Eastern Europe, okay? So let's say you want something unique. And I know that this, the Soviet Union punished towns that had a, an mm -hmm. independent spirit in the Warsaw Pact zone yeah. yes. uh, by making them industrial bases. I mean, the Oxfords, the Cambridges, and, and so on of Eastern Europe would become actually the industrial um, hellholes, right? Mm -hmm. right? Yes. Uh, where can somebody today get a, a dose of... Is there any, any of these towns that were industrial wastelands that are still... Uh, interesting to visit? Oh, yeah. It's like, especially when you go to Krakow. If you go just from downtown Krakow, you can come to this area called Nova Huta. Nova Huta. What does that mean? And mm, Nova, something new, but I'm, new. I'm not sure about Huta, what that means. Okay. But it's really this communist, industrial blocks, buildings, factories, kind of rusty and gray. And Nova Huta yeah. was... Uh, sort of a punishment because Krakow was historically where all the liberal, educated, yes. cultural people were. Yeah. That's so right. uh, Stalin, Khrushchev, they just said, ah, it's a good place for some pollution and some heavy industry. Yeah, that's how it was all around. And now Eastern Europe is 
former Warsaw Pact, all joined the European Union and uh, quite an enthusiastic uh, appreciation of the environment now, given the difficult time you've had for the 50 years before that. Things are making a great improvement from oh, an yeah. environmental point of view. It's sustainability, is of nature, of, you know, even tourism is getting really big. So they're really putting a point out, sustainable tourism, sustainable environment. That's really important now, and it's the big thing. And it costs something. Or, for instance, you and your Slovenian friends willing to pay extra to uh, to have things that are environmentally correct, or is that a tough sell? No, I think people are willing, especially in Europe, uh, mm-hmm. to pay more for it because we all kind of realize the long-term importance of it. And, I mean, our resources are limited. Europe is much usually overall much more densely populated and... Uh, we realize we have to cherish those resources we have. And you've been around for a lot longer than we have. I mean, yeah. in my town, 100 years is pretty old. And for, for you, you've got a 1,000-year-old building just down the street. You know sustainability is something that uh, really makes sense. Yeah. I've got Jill on the phone in Hillsboro, Oregon. Hi, Jill. Hi, Rick. What Thank- a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for your call. Well, we met you once uh, at one of your seminars up uh, in Edmonds, and it, that was a real treat for us bought several tapes, and one of them is the Eastern Europe. And my husband and I will be going in May. My son and his wife and my grandchildren are there, and so we want to visit them. But we're finding the airfares are, I guess, with the fuel costs, are really quite high, well over $1,000. You know, it is, I forget how many, but if you knew how many gallons of fuel it would take just just to fly one person across the Atlantic, I mean, your share of that flight it is overwhelming, and when the cost of fuel goes up, boy, the cost of airfare goes up with it. Thankfully, once you get over there, if you know uh, the ins and outs, you can uh, cut some corners and make that back. Well, we're also thinking about the gas situation over there, too. My son says they're paying upwards of $8 a, a gallon. Yeah, it's expensive. That just means uh, let's look at some fuel-efficient cars, or let's go on public transportation. And in Eastern Europe, the public transportation is far cheaper per mile than it is in the West. Jill, have you traveled in Eastern Europe? Well, my husband and I took a tour in 1998, and uh, so we were with a bus tour, and we were uh, all through Poland and um, Prague down to Vienna and Budapest um, and back into Germany. So we didn't really do any transportation, but my son, now they've been there for several months, and he does say that the mass transportation, which my daughter-in-law takes into the embassy every day, is quite wonderful, very clean very safe, and very much on time. Would you say, I think the approach to mass transit in Eastern Europe, uh, that's one, one of the positive things from the heritage that Eastern Europeans have with their socialistic governments is an attitude that uh, transportation should not be a burden for anybody. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah, true? That's, that's true. Was that true even yeah. in, in, your, in your countries? Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, it's uh, every man's right to get, have good, well sorted out transportation yeah. in the and it's uh, would it be subsidized by the government or of by course, taxes? You so have to subsidize yes. it, otherwise it doesn't work. It really it takes a lot of money, but it's worth it definitely. And what what's the rationale? Why is it worth it? Well, uh, you can't have that many cars in small cities. Of course, European cities are much different than American ones, and we cannot afford to have the, to have the same kind of transportation logistics as you do in the states. We have so much less space. Have to do it much more rationally, I suppose. In the long run, probably the states will have to look into that as well as their cities are growing and, and as the, the population. fossil fuels get more difficult, we're going to sure. need to find some yes. alternative and uh, maybe it's public transit. Jill, thanks for your call. Any other comments on Eastern Europe or questions for our uh, guests here? Well, I was wondering about uh, a train from pra- Frankfurt to Prague. You know, the airfare there is considerably less and I wasn't sure how far it was or if it would even be in the ballpark to, um, to take a train. Oh, it's, it's uh, certainly in the ballpark to take a train. Trains in. I was once on a train from Frankfurt to Rotenburg, as I do every, almost every year to update my material, and I go back to Rotenburg year after year, and it, I realized this very train I was on was going to Prague, and I thought if I could just stay in this train for two more hours, I'd be in Prague. Why should I go back to little fairy tale <laughs> Rotenburg again and again and again if I didn't know Prague? So I stayed on that train, and I, I uh, went all the way to Prague. You'll be surprised how quick you get around by train. How and many? How many hours was that? 
Oh, I don't know offhand, but I would I would think, what would you guess from Prague to Frankfurt on an express train? That's maybe about six, seven, yeah. six, six, seven six, hours. Six, six or seven hours, like maybe yeah. six okay. hours. So yeah. there's probably sleeper trains if you were traveling at night. Generally, if it's a six-hour ride, there would be a slower train overnight that you could get on at midnight mm-hmm. and wake up at eight or something like that. And any any ride that's a substantial ride, you should nowadays look into flying as you've got these uh, incredible budget airlines. I think mm-hmm. even in uh, Croatia and Slovenia, there's cheaper airlines now making oh, yes. destinations yes. like Dubrovnik much more accessible than a Many, few years yeah. ago. Oh yes, low cost airlines rock in Europe right now. Even for even for Ljubljana, the oh, capital even of Slovenia, for all over the place. Even the smallest little towns around Europe, which you would never think of getting to with a plane, they've got them. Well, can you tell me what some of those are, and I could uh, look them up on the internet. Okay, I haven't. You know, Ryanair, I know, and that's yes. mostly English, and they don't fly to Prague. Very popular is EasyJet. EasyJet. Yeah, and very popular Air Berlin. Air Berlin. Then you have Wizz Air. Sky Europe. Yeah, and and Sky they change Europe all too. the time. New ones coming, With old ones Air going. And Sky Europe. You know, Jill, if you go to my website at ricksteves.com, yes. look in the graffiti wall section. That's where everybody shares their experience and their tips. Okay. And look under Discount Airlines, and you'll find a vibrant community of travelers there sharing their latest experiences with the many, the countless budget airlines in Europe these days. Wonderful. All right. Hey, thanks for your call, Jill. Thank you. I'm talking with uh, Tina and Marion, and when when we're thinking about Eastern Europe, we always think Warsaw Pact, but uh, you guys are from former Yugoslavia, and Yugoslavia was not really in the Warsaw Pact, was it? No, no, not really. Not at all? No, because (laughs) it was Tito that was our leader, and he he let, let us out from the Warsaw Pact, and we had a different kind of communism in Yugoslavia for sure. So it was a lot different for us. I think the average American just tosses Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia, into yeah. the same bag. But you guys yeah. actually had your special uh, special kind of communism, yeah. more of a market-based co- oh, yeah. mo- mixing yeah. in some, you had uh, some free enterprise. Yeah, we could travel and go around, work elsewhere. I've got on the on the line Lisa from Marion, Arkansas. Lisa, thanks for your call. Hello. Yeah, thank you for your call. Where have you traveled in Eastern Europe? Well, we go to Romania every year. Uh, we do mission work over there. We have some friends that are um, missionaries in Bucharest. Uh-huh. And uh, they work with the Children's Relief Fund, and we help them by basically being glorified pack mules. We take over. We give all of our luggage to them. We take over shoes and warm clothing, and we each allow just a backpack for ourselves. I see. So wait and a minute now. Over. So you're glorified pack mules, meaning you go uh, with your church group or something from the United no, States? No, just ourselves. Just just my husband and I. We go by ourselves and we help out our friends by taking things to the orphanages that they have over there. And you bring you use your what you can carry onto the airplane for things you intend to leave there. Yes, we do. We 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 take all of our luggage, and sometimes we actually pay for more luggage to take with us. And then we just we just have backpacks ourselves. So is that gratifying to take um, uh, little odds and ends over to Romania? Do people appreciate that? Yes, it is. We really enjoy it. Um, we really enjoy traveling there. Uh, the city of Bucharest is not very user-friendly, <laughs> so that was my guess as to why it wasn't in your Eastern Europe book. The metro does not go all the way out to the airport. Well, you the reason, get to the, yeah. You have to take a bus to get out there yeah. or taxi. Lisa, the reason uh, Bucharest and Romania is not in my Eastern Europe book is because uh, almost no Americans go there, you know, and right. it's just a, a very unusual place to visit. I think over time more people will go it there. Is. I'm hoping that things will get better, will be easier to go there, because the country of Romania is beautiful. We, Whenever we've traveled uh, into the Transylvanian Alps areas, uh, it's gorgeous, and they have beautiful medieval cities, the city of Sigishwara. Are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah, Sigishwara. Now, what's interesting to me uh, in Sigishwara is this incredible uh, situation where you have little enclaves of German communities. Yes. And way back in the Middle Ages, for some reason, uh, Germans uh, inhabited these towns, and, and yes. in some ways they're more traditionally German than what you'd find in Germany. That, well, that is a fact in town. The citadel, Sigishwara, uh, there's a little there's a citadel there, and... Uh, I've been told the Citadel looks pretty much the same way it did 300 years ago. It's it's gorgeous, and it's a wonderful medieval town. And even Prince Charles, a few years ago, uh, he actually went there and stayed. And they were talking about having a, a Dracula theme park there, because that is where Dracula was born. Uh, the real Dracula, Vlad Tepish, was born in Sigishwara. Well, that sounds and, pretty... Uh, it sounds pretty tacky to me, but I guess that yes. that draws the tourists, well, doesn't Prince it? Charles was upset about it because he didn't want to, he didn't want them to do to do that to the town because the town is a beautifully preserved medieval town and it's right. gorgeous. 
Now there is a there is a Dracula Castle, which uh, apparently wasn't even his, but they sell it as Dracula's right. Castle in Braun. I've been there. That's in Braun. Yes, and it's quite a nice castle actually, but I don't think it has any historical connection to the actual Dra- Count Dracula. Not really, but it is very nice, and that's not that's very close to Brashov. Yeah, no, no, that's it. Still is in the Transylvanian Alps. Yes, I it think is. So. Well, if you go to Braun, there's a little town called Rajnov. It's not very far from Braun, and the movie Cold Mountain. Uh, they actually filmed a part of it. Up at the fort, my husband and I was there several years ago, and we went to the this old fort at the top. It's very, very beautiful. Are you familiar with that? No, but you it's know what I what, what I am familiar with is the fortified monasteries that Romania is yes. so famous for in the north yes, uh, eastern corner in Sucha, uh, Moldova. Uh, they have the the great monasteries. There's a famous one at Suchava, and these are, I think, some of the most interesting things to see in Romania. I've got uh, Tina and Marian with me from former Yugoslavia. Uh, do you guys have any experience or thoughts on Romania, having having heard uh, um, our friend from Arkansas talk about her experience there? Um, no, unfortunately not. We're not quite as familiar with uh, that area of Europe, and even for Europeans who live in that those parts of Europe, Romania is still not really quite one of the top destinations so that's probably a polite way to say you could go <laughs> if you could go anywhere Romania is not on your, on your top on your list no, but it is slowly well, opening really up shame, actually though, because it's, it's a beautiful country the people there are, to me the, the real treat of going to Romania we go there every year but the real treat for us to go is the people the people are so they're so warm and friendly and every time we go on a long train ride we are always we always make a new friend, and we've even been we've been invited to homes. Almost every time, we'll just meet a stranger on a train. We've been invited into homes. We've been invited on tours, and one little boy one year invited us to come over and play video games with him. <laughs> but, wow! Uh, you know, so I've the had people this, are so friendly. You know, Lisa, I've had the same sort of warmth and hospitality in my experience in Romania, and uh, every bit as warm in Bulgaria, which a lot of people don't go to either. I found so Bulgaria. There's a place that I would like to go. I haven't been to Bulgaria yet, but I, I do plan on going there one of these days. Bulgaria is wonderful. Lisa, thank it's you very much for your call. Thank you. Uh-huh, happy travels. So uh, I think one thing very uh, painful and sad about Romania is how their dictator Ceausescu was actually bulldozing all of these historic little towns. So many of the most charming villages that would have been so popular today for their tourist industry are long gone, and you've got this heavy industry kind of heritage that, mm-hmm. that survives. Marian Kriskovic and Tina Hiti from Slovenia, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Happy travels. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has more information about this and other programs in the series, including archived audio and podcast extras. You'll also find a link to post your thoughts for other listeners, to send your email questions for Rick, and to submit an original haiku for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. It's all on the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.